and good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn. When on this show, just about anything can happen. We're, we're trying to make a connection literally halfway around the planet, and we've got a few snags, so fortunately, I have what's in the business is called Phil. And I've got plenty to talk about tonight, so uh, uh, kind of fasten your seatbelts. We're going to have an extraordinary evening. Uh, my guest this morning is someone who is so interesting and who I've wanted to have on for so long, talking about something that is central to, and this is not an overstatement, central to all life on Earth and all the things that human beings are doing. So without further ado, let me kind of uh, do the top of the news here, and then we'll go to my guest this morning, who is Ray Tomes, who I believe we are now connected to half a world away in New Zealand, where it is tomorrow night already. I mean, this is on the other side of the dateline. If you, uh, if you think relativity is confusing, try making international phone calls halfway around the planet. Anyway, um, for those of you who are new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures, where you can kind of follow along, and you're going to want to do that tonight because we have some important graphs to show people, and uh, they're kind of the heart of the story, and you're going to want to be able to refer to them during the show. The way you get there is you click on tonight's banner on the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. That's our URL, and you'll see a big banner there how to make a lot of money using hyperdimensional physics for um, Saturday night, December 10th, and Sunday morning. And you click on that banner, that takes you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, it says in big letters to listen to the show. And under that, it says fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, uh, we have been plugged into the official NASA Artemis blog for several months now because, remember, they tried to launch initially this unmanned test mission back in August. Then they tried again a few days later. Then they tried again, and then they tried a third time. And finally, um, about a month ago, uh, 25 days and change now and counting, it was able to successfully leave um, pad 39B at uh, Cape Canaveral, and it went on an extraordinary looping journey as far as way as about 50,000 miles beyond the moon, from which it saw an extraordinary sight. So, after all this time, 26 days, it will arrive home tomorrow uh afternoon eastern time tomorrow morning pacific time at 12:40 uh, p.m eastern time so uh they're going to start coverage a couple hours earlier on nasa tv there is a ready link to nasa tv on the home page of the other side of midnight so you simply come here and you click on that and that will take you to the live broadcast which will cover every aspect of the um, separation of the service module, 
the reorientation of the spacecraft, this incredibly searing re-entry at something like uh, over 25,000 miles per hour, which will raise the temperature of this untested heat shield at lunar velocities, coming back uh, just over escape velocity from the vicinity of the moon. It will test it to temperatures in excess of 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, that's the kind of ultimate test, because if this spacecraft does not survive re-entry, then the last 26 rather extraordinary days that it has performed uh, estimably well uh, won't mean anything. Because if you don't get the spacecraft back when there's a human crew in it, that is a very bad hair day. So the big test is tomorrow morning. It will enter the Earth's atmosphere uh, shortly before the uh, uh, splashdown at 1240. So you're going to want to, if you've been following the mission, you're going to want to watch the climax. It's going to come down in the Pacific around 300 miles south of San Diego because there was a big cold front moving through California and then on into where I am tonight in New Mexico, the land of enchantment. I've heard from uh, uh, Ron Gerbron, who is there just outside San Diego, that they're talking about an entire day of slashing cold rain. Well, given that we're a mile up or more, uh, the rain for California is going to be snow for here. So fortunately, this will uh, not take place until uh, um, Monday uh, here and Sunday afternoon. So the splashdown, which has been moved accordingly to off Baja, uh, they can adjust the landing site by something like 1,200 miles. So they're doing that in preparation for this cold front, which will sweep into California and make you know life rather miserable for a whole bunch of people, up to and including NASA astronauts. While that all that's going on this morning at something like 2.28 um, a.m., uh, I think that's Eastern time, uh, NASA's going to try once again, actually it's not NASA, it's SpaceX, to launch the um, mi unmanned mission to the moon, which is called, uh, let me get this correct, Hakutu, Hakutu-R. This is an unmanned moon lander, which is going to be launched on a Falcon 9 rocket. Um, it's a private company, Tokyo-based, which has built this uh, spacecraft up to and including a NASA payload, which is called a Lunar Flashlight CubeSat, which will be launched um, uh, in the early morning hours um, uh, here, uh, or I'm sorry, there from Cape Canaveral. And I believe it's about 2.28 uh, Eastern time. And so adjust your clocks accordingly. Again, uh, it will be, I believe, carried on NASA television. If not, you can Google the uh, space launch, Hakutu, H-A-K-U-T-O dash R. That will take you to the SpaceX website. And they will have a running launch and commentary prior, about 50 minutes prior to the launch. So now the reason this is important is we've had a sudden spate of missions going to the moon. Um, unlike uh, uh, what I, I've said in item number two, the launch has now been rescheduled. When we wrote that a few days ago, it had been delayed for like the second or third time, but apparently the third time will be a charm. 
and they will get it off the uh, pad. And then in uh, in several months, I mean, this is taking literally the slow boat to China because uh, uh, there were some people that were kind of wondering why the Artemis mission took uh, six, seven days to get to the moon and the Apollo astronauts took only three. And they then based their claim that the whole NASA mission was fake based on the fact that the times did not coincide. Well, in the modern era, if you want to save fuel and you don't have astronauts on board, which are using oxygen and eating food and consumables, then you can afford to take a very, very long leisurely trajectory that in this case, if they launch successfully this morning or tomorrow morning from the Cape, they will not arrive at the moon. This is this Japanese unmanned lander mission will not arrive at the moon until April. January, February, March, April. That's four months plus, you know, however much of uh, uh, December is left. It's December 11th when they're launching early, early this morning, uh, tomorrow morning rather. Uh, so the reason is because this saves an extraordinary amount of fuel and with unmanned spacecraft, it doesn't matter how long it takes to get there. Remember, the journey is half the uh, uh, enjoyment. So they are taking the slow boat to China, in this case, the slow Japanese boat to the moon, and they will be added to the list of other unmanned spacecraft. Um, in fact, in a few days, on the 17th of December, the South Korean um, unmanned mission called Enjoy Moon will arrive in lunar orbit, joining the NASA CubeSat unmanned uh, mission, which uh, arrived uh, a couple of three weeks ago and is on station testing communications and other experiments for the uh, upcoming Gateway uh, Lunar Space Station, which is part of the long-range comprehensive Artemis program to return astronauts to the moon this time to stay. Because what our guys are going to do and women are going to set up a moon base. And I've heard, seen some people say it'll take them 10 years. No, um, once they solve the problem of how expensive the SLS is. And we'll get into a lot of this tomorrow night because tomorrow night we're doing the Artemis returns from the moon. And it, it's very important that we talk about what's next because, again, like NASA has been doing, they told us they had 16 incredible cameras. Well, they've given us just a handful of pictures, and frankly, those do not measure up. Now, we've been able to apply some sophisticated techniques to improve the resolution and the uh, latitude of what's on those images, and we've got some stunning new data on the uh, so-called lunar dome, which we will laying out tomorrow night. But... Um, uh, this is just kind of a foretaste. Uh, as I said, tomorrow night when we're on the air, Artemis should successfully have splashed down off San Diego, and we should be talking about uh, uh, some legal activity in Washington, which will guarantee that we're going to see the real amazing data that the Artemis mission recorded of the moon. And NASA, for whatever reason, just has not shown us this yet. And of course, uh, that will not obtain once the current NDAA, 
which I've been saying for some time, um, is successfully, um, uh, you know, made into law. In other words, it goes through the Senate and goes to the president's desk and he signs it. And then, as they used to say, uh, Katie bar the door because that will give license to anyone in NASA who has access to the original high-resolution, high-definition color imagery that was taken during Artemis, but not shared with the rest of the world. It will allow them to come forward and share this with congressional committees, with other branches of government, and most critically, with, under the First Amendment, the press. So I am I am going to see if, in fact, uh, what I think is waiting in the wings actually takes place. Now, as I said earlier in the show, we've got an extraordinary guest tonight. So before um, um, I give you kind of the background on what it is that we're going to be talking about, let you let me give you some background on Ray himself. Ray Tome has studied math and physics at university and then went into computer software development, specializing in software and investments. And it was through investments and trying to predict economic conditions that he found out that there were cycles and began to investigate them. This led to fascinating discoveries because in the late 1980s, he heard about the foundation for the study of cycles and visited them in 1989, speaking at their conference about towards a unified theory of cycles. After spending about a week in the FSC library before the conference, he found that much of the path he had independently traveled down had been visited before by the founder of the foundation, Edward R. Dewey, and others. Dewey confirmed what Ray had found independently, and many more areas of study opened up with interesting similar content. Ray has retired at the age of 42 to study primarily cycles and what he calls the formula for the universe full-time. Over the next several years, Ray's harmonics theory became fully formed, and Ray has now spoken about it at venues and conferences around the world. He started independently his own Cycles Research Institute when FSC temporarily went into uh, a shutdown in 1998 and developed CATS, Cycles Analysis and Time Series Software, for sale to the general public under the Cycles Research Institute. Later, when FSC had reconstituted itself and restarted, CRA joined with them and Ray was appointed a member of the Board of Directors and the Director of Science. So Ray Tomes, come on down. This is a conversation that I have been looking forward to for month after month after month. Hi, Richard. Nice to meet you at last. <laughs> well, I've got some surprises for you, and you have some surprises for me and for the audience. So let me go back and hit a couple of high spots about the foundation for the study of cycles, because it's very important that we get a kind of a proper perspective on who these people were. So let me start with the founder, whose name was Edward R. Dewey, 
And the story goes, uh, as we have uh, regaled it on this show many times, the story goes that Herbert Hoover in uh, the late 1920s um, had employed Edward Dewey as his chief economic analyst for the Department of Commerce, carrying out assignments, you know, that the president would deem as well as the general background of the Department of Commerce. When the Great Depression hit, Hoover turned to Dewey and he basically asked him, what the hell is going on? Can you figure out from your background as, as you know, a leading economist, can you figure out, A, what's wrong, not just with the American economy, but remember, the Depression hit most governments on the planet simultaneously, which had never in history, as far as I know, had happened before. And, and basically, there was this extraordinary need to find out not only what had gone wrong, but what, in fact, could be done to fix it. So in about uh, 1931, Dewey learned that after talking with many economists all over the world asking what they thought, and there, of course, was no consensus, um, he found that there was going to be a conference on biological cycles held in Canada, by uh, sponsored by a guy named Copley Amory. And that the conference yes, that's was- right. There's, there's one or two things to mention um, before that, I think. He, um, uh, he, as I heard it, he asked a hundred different economists why, why the Great Crash had happened then uh, and the Depression, and he got a hundred different answers. And he said, there's only one of them I think is right, and that's the one who said, Edward, we really don't know. Hmm. Uh, after all, if they had have known, they would have predicted it, and they didn't. So, um, and he got another piece of advice at that time from someone is, uh, don't try to um, explain why it happens. Try to ex- try to understand what happens. So he began, and that was when he started to look at cycles. And he found that if he ran the cycles uh, that existed in the economy in the 1920s forward, they did, in fact, predict the crash uh, oh. of 29, yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a follow-up to that one. Um, Dewey died in 1978, but he published a, a very good paper called the, um, the Case for Cycles in 1967. And in that, he had the phase, amplitude, and period of a whole lot of different cycles in the American stock market. Um, now, I didn't know about that stage because I didn't find out about him until the late 80s. But in 1986, uh, I predicted there was going to be a share crash in 1987, about September. It was in October, actually, it's the same as the previous one. And at that time, I, um, I I was using a bunch of cycles. And when I got to the foundation um, and found um, Dewey's cycles, I ran them forwards and they, he predicted his cycles predicted the 1987 share crash as well. So that was running them forward from 1967. So they worked 20 years ahead. That's how good his work was. Fascinating. Uh, I, I want to give some people some context because when the president of the United States and his cabinet and a lot of you know very influential, very wealthy people kind of all get together and create an institution, and they're tasking it with finding out something as extraordinary as, you know, the the crash of the business cycle all over the world simultaneously, which had had not happened before. 
I think it's important to kind of go into some of the people at the time who were involved because what, I, what, what I'm intrigued with is how from an initial extraordinary beginning where the right people were tasked with looking, the right resources were put at their disposal, a institution was created, this, this rather remarkable foundation, some, yes. some empirical answers were discovered, leading obviously to the idea that there was ultimately a scientific basis for prediction of future cycles on which the world economy would depend. And then it kind of all goes away. So I, yes. I want to, for the audience, I, I, I want to list kind of a who's who of who was involved. And then I want to talk, Ray, about why do you think that this which should have become central to human science and inspiration and research kind of disappeared under the floorboards. And well, really, yeah, and, and, and I think there is a reason for that. Well, hang on, hang on. Then, let, let, oh, let, sorry, let me carry give, on, carry on. Yeah, let me give people the background of who was involved. Uh, in addition to Dewey, who we said was the uh, uh, chief economic analyst for the Department of Commerce, there was a gentleman named Charles Greeley Abbott who served as a Smithsonian secretary. This is the Smithsonian Institution from 1928 to 1944. Abbott was an astrophysicist working for the, the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. As the head of the solar work of variable of the Venerable Institution, he conducted extensive research in charting cyclic patterns in solar variation and the measurement of the so-called solar constant. Yes, as you say, so-called constant, yeah. yeah. In order to better predict long-term weather patterns. Okay, there was another guy. Uh, he was the first chairman of the foundation. His name was Copley Amory. He was a yeah. businessman. Um, he, was in, uh, he was a very prominent Canadian. He studied everything from sunspots to the, to the market. Um, and it was in 1930, uh, 1940, rather, that Dewey learned of this conference and contacted uh, him and other conferees uh, and basically became part of the conference. And then they went on to jointly create the um, uh, foundation. Here's yes. another guy, George Backlund. Now, the reason that's interesting is be, uh, maybe it should be pronounced Bakeland because he was vice president of the Bakelite Foundation. Now, everybody knows about Bakelite, which was one of the first general plastics created in the, in the 1940s. Uh, there was a guy named Charles Campsell, who was a respected geologist and civil servant for more than 40 years. He served on the, as a commissioner of Canada's Northwest Territories, appointed to the Canadian National Research Council, served as president of the Royal Society of Canada, uh, and was on the original standing committee for the foundation of the study of cycles. There was a Sir Patrick Ashley Cooper, who was a member and director of the Bank of England. There was the U.S. ambassador to Japan, uh, William Cameron Forbes. Forbes, does that name ring a bell? Then there was the chairman of the Corning Glassworks, chairman of the Institute for the Advanced Study at Princeton, Allenson Bigelow Houghton, and of course, uh, Corning's most noted among our audience as the people that cast and created the largest telescope mirror, the 200-inch, 
for the telescope on Mount Palomar in the 1940s. And, and finally, I mean, we have a whole bunch of extraordinary people and they, including ending with Harlow Shapley, who was the director of the Harvard College Observatory, who had figured out the cycles of stars and how they are determining the lifespan of late sequence stars in the Milky Way galaxy and others. You had this creme de la creme de la creme foundation with all of these incredibly prestigious uh, financiers, businessmen, scientists, philanthropists, and it all went nowhere. Ray, why? Okay, well, you're quite right. There were a lot of famous people. There were a lot of uh, good business people there. And when Dewey found about the conference in Canada, um, he got in touch uh, with Amory and he said, um, we need to form a, he told them what he was doing, we need to form a foundation for the study of cycles. Within a month or two, they had done it. And all the guys that had been, and this was a decade or more after um, the other guys had last met, and so uh, it was. That was a big achievement, and they got going. And in my opinion, there's one thing that's necessary uh, to have a foundation, a cycles foundation, that works well, and that is to have both the uh, business people and the scientific people. When you have both, you have a healthy organisation. When you only have one, you don't get lift off. So, um, so from that time, from 1941, I think, when they set up or 42, through till Dewey's death in the late 70s, um, it ran very healthily. They, they put out um, a, a regular magazine. They had speakers that could talk on all of these different subjects. And as you said, a lot of famous people in business and in science uh, were involved. Now, um, I joined um, in 1989, around about there. Um, and at that stage, the meetings were still, um, had both types of people there, and that ran through in the 90s. And then somewhere um, around the mid-90s, um, I'm not gonna name the person. One person got, got became the um, chief executive of the foundation. Uh, and in my opinion, he was not a healthy guy. Um, and the result of that was that they began to concentrate on trying to make money only with business cycles um, and that meant that the, they began to lose the scientific ones uh, and the result was the collapse of the foundation in the late 90s. Uh, so um, I wanted to keep it going, that's why I started Cycles Research Institute and the foundation had another false start and conked out again before the latest one uh, on a much better footing and um, we now have Richard Smith running it and he's a good man um, and a number of other guys and they had a lot of um, market traders and such. Uh, so when I wanted to join with them uh, and I was more on the scientific side, they were very pleased for that because they understood that you needed this as well. Um, and we still haven't managed to build up the, we've got some science advisors, but um, we haven't got the large number of them that we need to be operating in a f fully healthy way at this stage. One of the big problems is I've tried to put lots of stuff about cycles into the into Wikipedia. And what, what happens? Um, there's a bunch of people, uh, some of whom uh, haven't quite finished university yet, who think they know everything, um, that everything. They think that everything they taught is a sum total of knowledge uh, and stuff that gets put into Wikipedia, they keep deleting it all. So, for example, 
I made a trip to Russia and met um, uh, Professor Afanasiev, who discovered a, a method of measuring geological ages incredibly accurately compared to what we do in the West. Uh, and I tried to put that material in the into Wikipedia, and people came along and deleted it. Um, and when I argue about it, I, I had battles, and I was fighting too many battles, so in the end I gave up. We will. Try, I did manage to get some things in, but not enough. Uh, so that's a major project to try and re-establish all that. And uh, it's not understood as an area of study in its own right. Um, and people aren't aware that in every branch of science, uh, people are finding cycles, but they aren't talking to each other. So they aren't aware how much there's a connection between the different ones that they find. And that's one of the things that we'll cover as we go along here, I hope. Okay, um, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes, who was a member of the Reconstituted Foundation for the Study of Cycles, founded back in the 1940s by Edward Dewey, chief economic analyst, who had been tasked by the president to find out why did the Great Depression occur? Um, this is kind of like interesting background. This is the theme from the Wild Wild West. It's going to get wild, folks. I guarantee you. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return on this Saturday night, December 10th, 2022. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, on December 10th, just a few hours away from another unmanned launch to the moon. Tune in tomorrow night on our Artemis Return program to see some extraordinary new data on what is waiting for us all. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes. We're talking uh, all the way around the world to New Zealand, where Ray hangs out and conducts his uh, own foundation, the uh, Cycles Research Institute. Uh, Ray, what was it that kind of brought you into the whole idea that cycles were real and even better that you could figure them out? 
Yeah, my first uh, awareness of them was when I was a teenager and some friends of my parents gave me uh, a subscription to Sky and Telescope magazine. And uh, I knew there was an 11-year sunspot cycle, but um, they published daily sunspot numbers. And I started graphing them. And after a couple of years, it was clear there was another cycle going on of about four months. And I hadn't heard of that one before, so I started looking at it. And I found, ah, um, four months happens to be the synodic period of Jupiter and Venus and the sun. Every four months, the three of them make a straight line. Okay, you're going to have to define synodic periods. Okay, uh, so Venus is going around fast. Every four months, Venus will either move between the Sun and Jupiter or be opposite the Sun from Jupiter. Uh, ah. And so those 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 instances mean that there's the biggest tidal effect. They are the two planets with the strongest tidal effect on the Sun. And so every four months, they were doing something to the Sun's tides, which was causing more sunspots. So I thought, if that's really right, I should be able to find other... Um, pairs of planets that, that would have moderate effect that show the same effect. And sure enough, I could. So I was a teenager then. I rode my bike into the city, looked up the books on the sun, and um, only one of them mentioned it. And it mentioned that in the 1800s, someone had uh, claimed the same thing. Um, but they um, but they thought it was personally be disproved with time and said, ha-ha, you're wrong, it hasn't. But the other interesting thing is, in the 60s, um, the Americans wanted to send uh, a man to the men to the moon, and they didn't want them to get fried by uh, solar flares. So they were madly studying how to predict solar flares. It turned out they found only one thing that worked well, and that was the alignments of the planets. Up till then, no one wanted to look at it because it sounds like astrology, but it's not. It's physics. So, um, so that was my first. Um, meeting of cycles. Later on, when I started working, um, I began doing work for the investments department at a, co at a um, company in New Zealand. And um, it's clear there were cycles in the stock market. And so I began to try and work out how to uh, predict those, um, sort of as a part-time hobby. And that gradually developed over a period of years uh, until in the, um, um, in the 80s, uh, I began to work significantly on it, and uh, it happens that um, you can make some predictions, and I, I did some, and then I came across um, Dewey's work uh, when I visited the foundation in 1989. What was, um, what was the reason that you visited the foundation? Well, which came first, your interest in cycles or visiting oh, the institute? What, my interest in the cycles came first, um, and as a result of that, um, there was an American guy by the name of Lane who did um, uh, stock markets and other markets. He gave a talk here, um, and I went along to that, and he mentioned the foundation of the study of cycles, so I quickly noted that down, um, and within a year, I was uh, at their next conference and um, finding out there was a massive material there that I, I'd done a lot of I'd done a lot of work on my own um, but the, the work that had been done by uh, um, the foundation like was you know more than 10 times maybe a hundred times what I'd done uh, and the amount of data they had and the records they had was so much greater but um, there was great agreement between what I had found and what had been found by Dewey and others um, 
shall we go through some of this material? So well, let, let me quote this one here from Dewey. Well, ha hang on one second. I want to oh, tell yeah, people, sure, if, yeah, if, yeah. If, if you want to connect to the foundation for the study of cycles, you go to my item number four, uh, which will take you to the entire website. And it's going to take you a while to kind of prowl around and poke around. And yeah. You'll find archives of the magazines, research papers, uh, graphs, documents. Uh, my item number five is the the founders, because again, what impressed me was this started at such a high level of people who are insiders. And the idea that you can be blown away by stupid idiots on Wikipedia who are pretending, because I think they're pretending, they know there's something uh, there, yeah. and they are designated hitters designed to stamp out burning ducks. Now, the reason I know yeah. this, <clears throat> several years ago, a brilliant uh, Canadian um, amateur um, uh, computer guy developed some software to track basically the people who were posting the most remarkable hit pieces on Wikipedia and he chose me as his kind of uh, you know model and it turned out that the people that were taking off the stuff on on my Wikipedia entry were based at NASA headquarters and they were operating 24 oh, yeah. seven to try to get people to think that Hoagland's a nut, he's an idiot, he's too far yeah. out, he's crazy, there's nothing on Mars, nothing on the moon. And the people who were logging on and doing this, according to this guy's software, were traceable right back to NASA headquarters. So yes. I would imagine the same kind of organized effort, considering the extraordinary import of the idea of cycles as a science covering every activity in the environment, the biosphere, and human endeavor. There's someone working very hard, not amateurs, mm -hmm. but paid professionals to keep yeah. anybody from taking cycles research seriously, seriously. decades yeah. after One of the me. creme de la creme accepted it and asked, how do we find out how it works? Yeah, one of the one of the things that's always joked is uh, in the in the business area is oh he's studying sunspots. <laughs> uh, now that's um, that's to try and make people not go down that path. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, two of the very rich families, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, one from the 1800s and the other from the early 1900s, studied two uh, important cycles. One's the 18-year cycle in real estate. Um, and as a result, the uh, Empire State Building was uh, built during the cheapest possible time to build a building. And the other one was they were following the 40-month cycle, uh, which is in um, stock prices, but it's also in what we used to call consoles and stuff. It's um, interest rates for um, short-term um, deposits and things. So, so those people have known those things for a long time, and that may tie up with what you're saying, that some people don't want everybody to know this. Well, it's always the case of inside versus outside, and those that have knowledge, yeah. knowledge is power. If you can keep the great unwashed from having the same power that you do, then you yeah. control them. They don't control you, even in the so-called democracy. Okay, let's get into some of the specifics, because the thing that fascinated me when I found out about the Hoover-Dewey story is that Dewey, who was a brilliant economist, was broad enough in terms of bandwidth to look outside his comfort zone, to look yeah. at something That's as remarkably diverse as cycles in yeah. the natural world, and that's where he found gold. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, I don't think he, um, well, I think he was um, prepared to look widely. Uh, some of the conclusions he came to, I think, took a while, especially that to recognise that some of these influences came from beyond the earth. I think he arrived at reluctantly. Um, well, I, he, think, um, I, I think there's a quote where he basically like the two good, you know, English, uh, English uh, uh, Yankees from Connecticut who brought yeah. meteorites to Thomas Jefferson. And, and Jefferson said to them, I would rather believe the two good gentlemen from Connecticut would lie that stones fall from heaven. From the sky. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that Dewey was so antagonistic to the idea of astrology that he yeah, never yeah. really became comfortable with the idea that astrology and all the other cycles are part of a larger universe of unified field and cyclic forces just just on a random note there uh, there's a book called the book of the damned by charles ford charles ford uh, know it well yeah I, 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 you know him well yeah. he wrote yeah. this incredible book you know and and it's got it's got basically it's Nothing a comp- falling from the sky it is a compilation of newspaper reports of all kinds of anomalies and yes. if, if you want to cast a wide net uh, fart fort is a very good place to, to, to yeah. start. There's a fellow named Corliss who, who published a whole series William of books. William Corliss, yes, yes. Yes, and that's, um, that is a, a, a rich mine for anyone who wants to find out about unusual phenomena, but scientifically verified. He, um, he is kind of the modern follow-on to Charles Fort. Yes, yes, yeah. So just well, those are worth mentioning along the way, I think. Um, so where do so we want I'm to dive in, 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 into Dewey? Because we've got a lot of material to go through. We have. So there's one quote from him. There is considerable evidence that there are natural environmental forces that alternately stimulate and depress mankind in the mass. These same forces may also affect plant and animal life, weather, and even normally unchanging things such as chemical reactions. Now, that's, um, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit mind-blowing. Um when I visited, I visited Russia, I got from them data on radioactive decay, and I can show you that there's cycles in radioactive decay, and they're also related to these chemical reactions and all these other things as well. See, hang on, so hang on, hang on, hang on. on. The, the, this, is, yeah. this, is, this is Hollywood sign high news, because yes, since yes. Libby in the 1940s, we've been told that radioactive decay is it's immutable, random that it yeah. follows an absolutely immutable clock. Therefore, you can use it to probe back in time billions of years with accuracy. Yeah. And what you're saying, and what, of course, I know separately, is radioactive decay constants vary all over the map. Yeah. And no one knows why. Yeah, well, I, might, I might have some clues about that. <laughs> so might I. Um, some of the, uh, um, I, I recommend the, the, the Case for Cycles by Edward R. Dewey. You can find it on cyclesresearchinstitute.org. Uh, I recommend um, this, if people just get one thing, get that. Um, and and uh, so I've got some graphs from there, I've got some quotes from there, um, and it's a, it's a gold mine because it's a distillation of Dewey's work. He, he cut it down to the minimum uh, amount that he could to give the flavor of it all. Um, to put it across. Now, if you want um, to find the Cycles Research Institute, which is Ray's Institute for Studying the Science, 
uh, it's right at the top of his bio. So click on where it says Fast Links to Bios on the Radio with yep. Pictures page. Click on Ray. That will take you to his bio right at the top. HTTPS colon, et cetera, cyclesresearchinstitute.org. Yep. Right. Very good. Thank you, Richard. So one of the graphs from there, uh, I think this one is one of the most spectacular ones, is, is the graph of the uh, Canadian lynx. Um, they've got data going back to the 1700s, um, 1740s, and they um, these have been trapped for their fur. Um, and the, the population, as best they can estimate from how many they could catch, roughly multiplies by 10, and divides by 10 over a period of 9.6 years. And it continues to do that decade after decade after decade. So um, now it, it has been said that this is probably a predator-prey cycle because a similar thing happens to the snowshoe rabbit. However, there are a bunch of other animals that have no connection with those, for example, trout in the Atlantic and tent caterpillars in America um, that also show the same cycle. And even humans show a bit of the cycle um, it's um, the amount of heart attacks people have does uh, fit in with the cycle also. So um, the only thing that's connected to it that peer, other than animal populations is um, ozone. So it's possible that ozone plays some part in what happens there. You mean ozone coming from the ozone layer somehow reaching the ground being inhaled and causing uh, this? I, I, I think probably in the ozone layer, I'm not sure. It may be affected what gets through. Is it possible? And we're going to get into this in detail later on. And by the way, yeah. Ray, Ray's going to be coming back for another show where we're going to talk specifically about his harmonics theory to explain the cycles that we're going to talk about tonight, as well as much larger cycles in the universe as a whole. Yeah. So tonight we're going to do empirical data because all science begins in data. Exactly. We agreed on that. And the uh, um, Dewey had this system which where he, remember, uh, most of his work was done before uh, there were um, computers in wide use. Um, so we have to remember that. And it wasn't easy. And so he had teams of um, housewives. Housewives were cheaper in those days. So these days you're not allowed to do that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and so uh, he had them writing down long strings of numbers and doing arithmetic with them and stuff. Well, they did the same um, thing in all the major uh, colleges like Harvard and Yale or whatever, I, except they called, they called them computers, even though yeah, they were right, really they scientists. And they did all the numerical calculations by hand with adding machines because computers were non-existent at that level so they used a whole bunch of human beings primarily female call them yeah, calculators yeah. and this then migrated into nasa remember john glenn's story how he wouldn't leave the ground and in, in, in case one black calculator one black woman did the calculations yeah. for his orbit oh, yeah. she was amazing wasn't she she sure yeah. was yeah, yeah. So played a part in all of that. Um, so um, real estate activity shows a very clear eighteen-year cycle over a long period. This is item number four in Ray's section. Yeah. Um, and there's other ones. There's um, um, a three-month cycle in um, in the trends of sales of one company goes on year after year after year. Um, this is item number five. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, 
he, he, Dewey mentions a few things that happened. For example, um, there's one here uh, showing um, that one. Um, Are we talking number six now? Pig iron. Yeah, pig iron. Um, okay, and so uh, and it goes it goes it goes all ski whiff in the um, early thirties. Well, let's uh, let's, let's comes, not skip over these again. because this is really interesting. The chart is, shows yeah. a yearly rate of change in pig iron production from yeah. January nineteen oh one to December nineteen forty. That's a big swath of data. Forty one, yeah. uh, large a large amount of data, together with a diagram See, of yeah. a perfectly regular. 41-month yes. cycle. Note the that after... 41-month cycle is, is uh, an important one. We'll come back to that. Um, it, and it goes all, goes badly wrong in the early 30s. Um, but then it does a bit of a catch-up, and then it comes back into phase again. Now, when we get to Dewey's rules about the cycles, we'll find that that's covered in his rules as one of the important things. Well, that indicates, just you know, from a layman's perspective... That whatever's driving cycles in very diverse, different fields, you know, biological systems, uh, sales prices, production quotas in corporations, there's some background common force. Something is driving the system yes. and it's showing up in these variables that are visible, but they're just yeah. like leaves riding on the current. It's what's uh, driving the current. We want to find yes. out. Absolutely. Yeah. And now here's a list uh, of the different areas they found cycles in natural sciences, this astronomy, is, natural this physics. This is number and seven. Yeah. And there's great lists of different things. I'm not going to read them all out. There's far too many. Um, now, I, I would have only studied a fraction of that many, but um, uh, I was coming to the same conclusion. And then um, this, the, next, the next graph. I've done from four months through to 64 years, and I put one one dot there for every report of a cycle. Now, this is based on Dewey's report, uh, the reports of the foundation. Um, okay, this, is, this see, is number nine of your items. Yeah, and, and you can see there's certain periods, for example, four months and eight months, also two years, 3.4 years, just under six years, and so on, uh, 18 years, 54 years, that pop up over and over again. They're very common ones. So we'll come back to that, um, why they, what they are and why. This is Dewey's table that he did, which shows a lot of the common cycles. He started from 17.75 years, and then he doubled it to get 35.5, doubled it to get 71, and he halved it to get 8.88 and halved to get 4.44. Oh, so this is and number 10. This is number 10. Yeah, he multiplied by three to get 53.3, divided by three to get 5.92, and so on. Now, this is the interesting bit because I had a little table of my own. It was a bit different to this. But in essence, I had a 4.45-year cycle compared to Dewey's 4.44. I had a 35.6-year multiple of the other cycles compared to Dewey's 35.5. I had a 5.9-year compared to 5.92. And you can see, so you can see when I saw this table, I went, hello, hello. Um, I, Dewey has been finding the same stuff well, as me. Well, you know what but, this looks like. This looks uh, like, in music theory, we call it harmonics. And yeah, subharmonics. Yes, that's right. It's Pythag It's called Pythagoras's lambda. He never mentions Pythagoras in this, as far as I can see, but he must have been aware that it's Pythagoras's table. You mean Dewey doesn't mention Pythagoras? So, 
So that's the um, but at that point. Um, at that point, no one could ever convince me again that what I had found wasn't real. Dewey was using different data from different countries in a different time period to what I was using and coming up with the same answers. So to me, that meant this is a real thing that's really going on and it's very substantial. Why don't, also, why, um, why don't you read his conclusions in number 11? Uh, is there a conclusion there? Well, everything studied by man that yeah, can yeah. be made into a time series has cycles yeah. attached to oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Yeah, this is number 12, yeah. Every, yeah every, everything studied by man that can be made into a time series has cycles in it. He, he said he didn't find Actually, anything. Actually, on, my, on my list, it's number, number 11. You yeah. Know. Um, there are common cycles periods that exist in many seemingly unrelated fields of study. These cycles with common periods exhibit cycle synchrony, meaning that they reach their peaks and their troughs at the same time. Even though they're not anywhere possibly connected. Yeah. So it's staggering, isn't it? Many of the commonly reported cycles exhibit simple ratios of two and three and their products between them. The observed cycles that fit these patterns are outside the Earth. Bingo. So those those things there say, okay, something's going on, and it's big, very big. Now I've put a little thing here. I've done a little chart um, of um, five thousand year time line of cycles events. Okay, now, it's this, not, this, no, this no, is hang on, complete. hang on. This is number twelve on your page. Yeah. Uh, Number, yeah, okay, my number 15, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, I've just started with Stonehenge, sort of like 2500 BC onwards. Uh, they were working out the cycles, and they worked out uh, the cycle of eclipses, and they could predict eclipses. By 1700 BC, they could predict eclipses. They, they were not the only people doing this. It was happening all over the world. People were making these sort of things to study the motions of the sun and the moon and working it all out. Um Hindus um, had stuff going through a long period there, and around the period of 600 BC, the Hindus and Buddhists had a lot of cycles, and they and they, they the Greeks learned from them, and they carried it on as well. Um, and again, we should probably put in there um, the Muslim ones around 600 AD. They mm. were looking at that stuff too. Now, come to um, the 1500s, 1600s, we have in rapid succession Galileo, Kepler, and Newton. We could put Copernicus in there as well. Uh, but Newton, uh, that Kepler worked out the elliptical nature of planets' orbits and all of that, and Newton worked out why that all happened in terms of gravity. So um, that, those were big advances. In the, in the next century or two, we had um, uh, Herschel, Jevons, and Juggler. They were economists, um, and they were studying markets and things and prices and commodities and all of that. Following that, in the 1900s, we had Dewey, Wheeler and Chusevsky. Now, Dewey and Wheeler were in America, and Chusevsky was in uh, um, in Russia. So, so I've got a picture here of the, the two of those, Dewey and Chusevsky. To my mind, they were the well; those three were the first interdisciplinary cycles researchers. Which is so I model myself after that to be an interdisciplinary cycles researcher. Uh, the first mention of harmonically related cycles, uh, Schumpeter was one of these economists. Um, the Kondratiev cycle was 54 years, the Kuznets cycle was 18 years, and the Juglar cycle was 9 years. So we notice 54 divided by 3 gives 18, 18 divided by 2 gives 9. There was a, 
a 40 or 41 month cycle, the kitchen cycle. Uh, it didn't fit into the other one. So that was not harmonically related as far as anyone could tell. So that's, um, but um, so Dewey mentions those. Um, he began to find his own pattern, but um, he decided he's got to have a proper basis to all of this. And so he, he said, I'm indebted to Professor Richard P. Feynman, theoretical physicist of the California Institute of Technology at Pasadena, for the basic structure of the article. Professor Feynman once said to me, now, for those who don't know, Feynman is probably the most famous American physicist. Um, and so he was a good man to go to. After Einstein, of course. Oh, oh, well, we didn't. Well, we didn't call him an American, but he did end up settling there, of course. Yeah. Uh, in regards to cycles, the proper scientific assumption to start with is that they are chance. If they cannot reasonably be chance, the next assumption should be that they are caused within the phenomenon of the system of which the phenomenon is an interacting part. Only if the cycles cannot be the result of chance or endogenous causes should we undertake to postulate external or exogenous causes. This formula of Professor Feynman's has constituted the basic philosophy of the foundation from that day to this, is the framework around which the following paper has been built. That's the case for Cycles paper. So um, now um, I, I would get, when I was putting stuff in Wikipedia, I would get rubbish by people for this nonsense and stuff. And I said, well, I said, it was all written by a man who took solid advice from Richard Feynman. Are you going to disagree with Feynman? <laughs> that usually shut them up. Um, so away, away we went. Yeah, yeah, the problem, Ray, with that is you're playing to the to the choir of authority. Just because a well-known yeah. guy says something doesn't make it true. Absolutely agree. But in fact, Feynman was right about that. Well, when he says in his first line, in regard to cycles, the proper scientific assumption to start with is their chance, except yeah. we're surrounded in a universe where everything is cyclic. The moon goes yeah, around right. the earth, we go around the sun, we go around the yeah. galaxy, you know, uh, atoms have specific frequencies, the electron spins around the proton, you know, in terms of the wave theory, it's certain numbers of cycles. In other words, we're, we're surrounded by cycles. Why would Feynman reject out of hand yeah. the idea He's that a cycle might be real? I think he was trying to give uh, Dewey the means to say these are real, you know, say um, they can't be chance. Um, I agree with you. I look at everything and everything I see as cycles and are from the longest to the shortest. Um, some of the longest cycles are extremely long. Um, and you're familiar with the short ones because you studied the physics. Um, when you study geology, you find there's some very, very long ones as well. Absolutely. Um, okay, we are coming up to the top of the hour. So let's tease them with something really interesting for when we come back. Oh, okay, yes. I will come back, yep. Okay, we got a couple of minutes here, so. Um, okay, we'll give them this one. The case for cycles. The argument for the existence of these forces runs something like this. Almost everything fluctuates. Many things fluctuate in cycles or waves. Many of these waves are spaced very regularly and have other characteristics that indicate the spacing cannot reasonably be chance. Non-chance spacing must, by the meaning of words, have a cause. This cause must be internal, dynamic, or interacting, feedback or better to pay, or external. In excellent, event, excellent. Let's hold it there. force of some sort. Let's In many hold. instances, this force cannot reasonably extend. We are, we are at the top of the hour. Sorry, Ray. The clock is implacable. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll get back to Ray Tomes and the theory really 
of everything in the cycles around us. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>